Welcome to Making Action Happen with Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. We're here to discuss public policy issues in our home state of Colorado and beyond. Making Action Happen is presented by Action 22. Find out about our organization at action22.org. Now, here are your hosts, Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Making Action Happen. I'm your host, Brian McCain. As you can see, Sarah's Again, not with us today. She's not going anywhere. She just had some other stuff to do. I think she had to take her kids to a ski resort somewhere ski or something, something like that. Yeah. So we're going to bring in Micah on this one to co-host with me. Um, as I said on the last podcast, we kind of have an exciting one for you today. Um, in the Action 22 area, a lot of the complaints and concerns that we hear from our members and our board are based around crime. Um it's, it's no secret that we've talked about legislation that was passed in the um, recent years that kind of had a negative impact or unintended consequences on our law enforcement communities here in rural Colorado. So with that, I decided to call up an old friend. Um, I've known him for years. Uh, initially started working with him when I worked for Congressman Tipton, and we were seeing an a opioid and heroin problem coming into rural Colorado. Uh, so I, one day, Victor calls me up. I get an email saying, hey, I'm this guy over here, and I have this class that I think you guys should go through that you'll learn a lot. So over the years, we established a relationship, and he advised us on many issues when it came to cartel, drug, crime, everything in rural Colorado that impacts us every day that has increasingly gotten worse over the years. But that I bring him on the show. So Victor, tell us a little bit about yourself, sir. How are you? Good afternoon. Good afternoon to everybody or good evening or whatever time you're actually listening to this podcast. Um, my name is Victor Galarza. I am an active law enforcement detective uh, here in Colorado, in rural Colorado. And like you said, we've actually met back in, I believe it was 2017, around that time uh, when I actually had the chance to bring you and your old boss, uh, former Congressman Tipton, over to my agency to show you exactly the issues that we were dealing back then. And this already some time ago. And now, as you said, those issues have increased exponentially. Um, so so that's how we actually met. That's how you have to uh, actually recognize uh, what I pass along to my brothers and sisters in law enforcement. And in fact, government, government officials as well. And where do I come from? Where's my background when I, when I have the ability to talk about these subjects, uh, the subject of security, the subject of the Mexican transnational criminal organizations, or as some call it, the Mexican cartels? Um, where's my background come from? Well, um, I arrived in the United States, uh, not to age myself, back in the uh, uh, late 80s as a Mexican uh, foreign operative, as a Mexican foreign diplomat. Uh, I first was attached to the Mexican Consul General in Chicago, Illinois, and later uh, transferred to the Mexican Embassy or the Mexican Mission to the OAS in Washington, D.C. During that time, I've, um, I've been able to um, experience uh, the side of government and law enforcement through those eyes. But even before that, um, you know, I was born and raised in Mexico City, uh, and I have the sad news to say that my family suffered under the hands of the cartels throughout my whole entire childhood. From my uncle, who was a member of a, um, 
intelligence service, a federal inter- intelligence service in Mexico back in the 80s. He was assassinated. Uh, my grandfather was actually held at ransom in his own house, and he was a commander of a law enforcement agency in Mexico City. Uh, my parents were foreign diplomats, and so that's the background that I bring to this con- to this to this subject. Um, it's a very personal fight for me, uh, which I continue and I will continue uh, to defend and protect the new country that accepted me with open arms, the United States and the great state of Colorado. It, it's kind of interesting, and I said this on our last podcast um, with Chris Carter. He's a local veteran, and he does addiction and drug counseling, specifically f- um, focusing on veterans. And he also works, I think, in the prison system with addicts and just PTSD, that type of thing. But I noticed, and I, I think I told you this, but I used to go on tour in, in bands, like punk rock bands and stuff back sure. in the day. And um, it was it was around 2015 that... You know, we were going, and again, we're playing in little towns all across the country, and of course we're punk rock, so everybody parties and drinks and has a good time and stuff. But around 2015, these houses that we'd stay at in our network that we'd stayed at since like 2010, it went like over a year to, yeah, let's party and drink, and you know, sometimes they smoke weed and do other stuff, to like heroin dens overnight, literally Within a year, you had a house that was fun and happy, whatever, to basically a heroin den, just like that. And that was around 2015. And I remember coming back, and it was right when we got to know each other. You know, I told Congressman Tipton, I was like, look, man, this is coming because we're hitting all these, like, rural areas in Texas or Montana or wherever. And it was a switch from just, like, recreational drug use to a lot of heroin flooding the market. And that was about the time he reached out to me. And that's when we were seeing this influx of heroin. I and mean, we saw it so bad in, in Pueblo. And it was, you know, not ironically around the same time that they legalized marijuana in, in some of these states like Colorado. So, you know, just talk a little bit about that. Like, I look at this, and I know we're going to go through the cartel stuff a lot. But, you know, there was, it seemed like this massive dump off or flooding the market of heroin around that time. Why did that happen? You can, you can approach it as a market, right? You can approach it as uh, supply and demand. Supply is based on the demand a specific market has. It's a business. And so if you have around the 2010s, um, the first phase of the opiate epidemic, which was the medications, the uh, the oxycodone and the, the, the other opiates that were prescribed by the hundreds to some individuals, you could actually go into to Florida, and they they can actually prescribe an individual thousands of these pills. And now we start seeing at that, that around that time, the early two thousands, um, that influx of prescription medications. And once we start realizing, as Americans, that this was a, a, a epidemic when it came to abuse of these substances, we started putting a cut to that. We started putting new 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 laws, uh, new limits on prescription medications, that type of thing. Well, we already have addicts at that point in time. We already have people that are craving that specific product. They have to get it somewhere, somewhere. And so that demand for a supply, for a new supply, came on. And on top of that, we started seeing the change in demand here in the United States for Mexican brick marijuana. So where does their product need to go? Where do they need to increase the, their actual 
uh, markets. Where are they going to make more money, continue to make more money? Well, they see a new market of opiates in the United States. Boom. Let's start injecting more and more and more heroin into this game. And that is where it actually changed. Good. I wanted to bring that point up and then that will circle around the fentanyl towards the end of our discussion yeah. here, obviously. Um, so now for the fun stuff, the Mexican cartel, I guess let's start at the beginning. <laughs> so let's, let's get away from calling them. First of all, the Mexican cartel. Okay. Let's start calling them exactly what they are. They are the Mexican transnational criminal organizations. They used the word cartel dates back to the 80s, specifically in Mexico. In reality, a cartel, it doesn't have to be an illegal group. It doesn't have to be an illegal business. It's basically a conglomerate, the true definition. It's a conglomerate of individuals that come together for one purpose and one purpose only, to make money. The first time that the DEA actually assigned the name cartel to an organization was the groups in Burma that were actually producing back then the heroin that was coming into the United States. Eventually, that name landed in Colombia for the organizations that were bringing in cocaine into the United States. And eventually, once we have the, the creation of the largest Mexican transnational criminal organization back in the 80s, which was the Guadalajara cartel, that's when they assigned that name to that organization. Now, when we talk about transnational crime, transnational crime means that they operate not just in the United States and not just in Mexico, but you can find the Mexican transnational criminal organizations today operating in approximately, if not over, 40 countries around the world. You can find them all through the Americas. You can find them all through Europe. You can find them in Africa. You can find them in Oceania. They take cocaine and methamphetamine into Japan and in Indonesia. So you can find them anywhere you point in the, in the map. They are there and they're present and they're incredibly um, powerful, sophisticated, and better situated, especially here in the United States, to operate than the uh, terrorist groups operating in the sandbox, believe it or not. Wow. Mexican cartels in the United States operate um, as they hide in plain sight. Yeah. Simple as that. That's so, the truth about these organizations. So that would put them on par because you think, you know, international crime, obviously everybody thinks of the, the mafia or the mob or the Russian mafia. They're up there. Are they one of the biggest out there? Let me clarify that also. According to the United States Department of Justice, the Mexican transnational criminal organizations are the number one criminal threat to the United States. And how much is that business worth? Do we have a number that we track on that uh, from pure business it's standpoint? It's a guess. Yeah. It, it's a guesstimate at best. I mean, in reality, what we, what most people think about the transnational criminal organizations, the cartels, they're like, oh, it's the dope game, right? right. No. No, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to say their game goes to illegal fishing, the legal uh, forestry for, for wood products, um, illegal mining, the, the theft of oil, the uh, trafficking of those minerals stolen from Mexicans, the Mexican land, which includes the iron ore, gold, silver, 
lithium. Very important to actually know about the lithium. They do um, kidnappings, hijackings, um, literally driving in a highway in Mexico and you're a truck driver and you have goods and services, expect to actually get um, stopped and expect to get uh, robbed. Train robberies. There's a part in Mexico where they call it the, uh, the Red Triangle or the Bermuda Triangle because everything disappears. Mm-hmm. These organizations literally do a hijacking of the entire train, almost like you were in the wild, wild west, wow. and they seek three different products. They seek um, household goods, like electrical goods, TV, stoves, that type of thing, seats for agriculture, and female beauty products. They do whatever they can to make a financial gain. There's a very large criminal organization that is in control of the legal fishery off of the coast of the Bajas and off of the coast of Sinaloa. There is a criminal organization that has literally um, counterfeited bare baby formula so they can make a legal profit. So they do everything, anything they can. So when people say, yes, they're making between $16 billion and what other figure they have, how are you going to guess that? How do you even know? And, and that, that's an important point that I bring up. And again, I've gone through your class um, with the Vigilance Project, uh, I think three times. I think I went through three times. Um, you know, it's, you hear this a lot from some of these advocates that are like, well, just legalize all the drugs and it'll get rid of the, the cartel problem. I'm like, dude, they're about money. They don't care how they make their money. And drugs are just like one notch on their ladder. They're in everything. Um, let's let's jump let's jump into mar- the marijuana right okay. let's legalize marijuana and so that's going to completely clear uh, the uh, <laughs> the the marijuana problem okay well not only do you have the mexican transnational criminal organizations planting and basically taking over federal land mm-hmm. national forest and yeah. blms where they grow thousands of plants and not only that if that doesn't piss you off the amount of chemicals that they bring over to these lands that belong to the people of the United States and they poison the, 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 the animals, the, 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 uh, the, the plants that live in these uh, protected lands should piss you off enough. I've seen helicopters, military helicopters from the, uh, um, um, the National Guard here in, the, here in Colorado take thousands of pounds of poisonous products poisonous chemicals from these types of grows. Now, if that doesn't piss you off, how about indoor grows? Indoor grows belonging to the Chinese. You go to certain parts of Colorado and they have hundreds of houses that actually have set up illegal grows inside of them. Now, okay, so it's marijuana, right? It's a plant. But what about the person that actually has a house next to that house and the person that has a house next to that house? What do you think happens when they discover, when people discover that those houses were closed down, those houses are now worth nothing because they're filled with black mold? What happens to the value of your own home, of, of the biggest investment an American has, which is their own home? What happens to that? So it's, it's not what I hear all the time, that it's a um, victimless crime, not even close. And in fact, today, even though the Mexican transnational criminal organizations have decreased the importation of marijuana into the United States, 
They still control the market of marijuana, which is the largest one in Brazil. So they continue to make billions of dollars in that product as well. And also, this has happened in Pueblo, I think, two or three times. What happens when you have your kid wander over to your neighbor's house and you look in a window and then they bust you? And, you know, we saw it. um, I mean, you see it over there, but like over here. How many times do we read about an illegal indoor grow with like 34 people living in a house, you know, from Chinese to Cuban to Mexican, um, you know, stuffed in this house? Or uh, there was a couple instances when they they found these illegal grows on Forest Service land. And one thing that's really important in Colorado is water. And Mm -hmm. they steal a lot of water. And then when they find it, they have to treat the entire area as a hazmat operation. So on top of that, you have, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of taxpayers' money going to clean this up in the middle of the forest. Um, it's very important. It, it's, it touches everything. And then on top of that, you know, why grow it in Mexico, move it over the border when they could go set up in California? And, you know, I don't even think it's like a felony if you get caught with an illegal grow in California. And not only that, so the law enforcement agencies that actually go and and uh, take care of all these uh, hazmat sites, ha- hazmat sites, actually have to go through training to uh, prevent being the victims of booby traps. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought it was ironic, you know, that there was a job opening for I think it was the U.S. Forest Service or BLM, and it was literally a SWAT team. That's what it was. Mm-hmm. I'm like, why is it? You know, why why do you think the Forest Service needs a SWAT team? You know, you're supposed to be out there checking fishing license or like, you know, hunters or whatever. And now they have to have SWAT teams that go into these areas because they'll some poor ranger will stumble across and get in a gunfight in the middle of the forest somewhere. So it's in fact, that's the most dangerous job you can actually do in law enforcement would be a wildlife ranger because you're out there by your lonesome. You have thousands of acres to cover. And the closest thing to you would be. Uh, maybe a radio, maybe a phone call if you get signal, and maybe get a helicopter to come and rescue. And helicopters do not fly good in mountains, too. Most yeah. people don't realize <laughs> that. It's not as simple as just flying up there. It takes a while. Very, so, very right. So one thing that I really want to hear about is the history of this. Like, how did we get to where we're at now from the beginning to, to today? That's... How, that's one reason why I wanted you to come on is to explain the dynamic, how this started and how it got here. That's a, that's a, that's a long one for sure, because, yes. you know, um, Mexican organizations have been involved in, let's just call it trafficking, right? Or uh, the importation, the illegal importation of products into the United States since the American Civil War. They were actually taking cotton uh, back down to Mexico, and the cotton was being sold down there, and that would actually assist the uh, against the fight of northern aggression. And then we even see another example of that when we had prohibition. Uh, prohibition, the Mexican organizations based out of Reynosa at that point in time were bringing illegal product, which was booze at that point in time, um, to the Chicago organizations, to Al Capone, literally. Uh, and so we have these these avenues and these organizations that have been doing this for God, I mean, over a century now. In reality, the very first time a criminal organization or a group from Mexico began importing illegal narcotics into um, the United States was around 
uh, World War I, uh, when they needed more opiates to actually, or opium, to actually produce medication for our fighting uh, brothers and sisters that were abroad in Europe. And the very first documented purchase of these illegal narcotics was of opium. It happened in Tijuana from a Chinese-Mexican national uh, transporting and selling the product to an American Jewish member um, in the United States. And that is the very first documented incident in which a CI or a confidential informant was actually utilized. And during that operation, it was discovered three things. One, that you can make a lot of money dealing dope. Well, it doesn't take a rocket science to figure that out. Number two, it was the first time a CI was used. And number three, it was discovered that the Mexican military at that point in time, the commander of that region, was actually assisting in this. So that's kind of like the beginning of the facts around drug trafficking in Mexico. Um, in, in reality, like I said, it's based on demand. There was a Mexican president sitting down with another Amer American president during the 70s. And this Mexican president told uh, the American president, it was Lyndon Johnson, I believe it was Lyndon Johnson, told him, like, what you need to do is curve the demand in the United States. I'm like, well, how are we going to do that? Uh, because you folks down in Mexico are the largest trampoline bringing in dope into the United States. And then the Mexican president told him, like, well, we're the largest trampoline because you guys are the biggest pool. Mm -hmm. So I... Again, it's based on the demand, and the largest demand in the world is the United States, unfortunately. So unless we learn how to um, eat, smoke, swallow, and, excuse me, keister um, these, um, these narcotics, we're not going to be able to curve what's happening today. Um, and so we have the demand of, of, of these products coming into the United States. And before we had the Mexican transnational criminal organizations or the Mexican cartels, we had DTOs, drug trafficking organizations. And these DTOs were focused on various sections or parts of the country. Those sections or parts of the country are called plazas. This was the old plaza system. In fact, the name plaza comes from the word jurisdiction. So these individuals had their own jurisdiction, and some of them had their own products, their own specialty. You have the groups over in the eastern part of Mexico, in the tip, Reynosa, Tamaulipas, those places, they used to focus on heroin, on opium. You have individuals focused in the parts of Sinaloa or the state of Guerrero. At that moment in time, you're talking about marijuana. So those were the largest two products coming into from Mexico directly to the United States. Eventually, we have the, the, the conglomerate known as the Guadalajara cartel being cre created by Felix Gallardo. Uh, he basically put all these families together, all these DTOs together to form the, the, uh, the Guadalajara cartel. And eventually, once they had gotten to the point where they had a conglomerate, they had a monopoly on the production, manufacturing, transporting, and trafficking of marijuana into the United States, they, again, thinking and seeing that there was another demand in the United States for another product. 
and that product was cocaina. They hit up the organizations in Colombia, and now the Colombians figured out that the Mexicans actually had a great way, a great avenue to travel into the United States. Because at that point in time, we had the Coast Guard, and we had the Air Force over in the the, the Atlantic and the, uh, the Gulf of Mexico, uh, actually curving the product coming in from Colombia, Venezuela, Peru, into the United States, controlled mostly by the Colombian organizations. And so now we have the Mexicans bringing in Colombian product. And at first, that Colombian product is basically transferred hands. It went from the Colombians to the Mexicans. The Mexicans would take it over to the United States and and actually pass it on to the Colombians, and they would get a certain amount of money per kilo. Um, Eventually, that changed where the, the Mexicans would take it from the Colombians the Mexicans would keep half of the dope load and then they bring it into the United States. Half goes to Mexican groups. The other go, half goes to the Colombian groups. And what we see now is completely different because now the Mexican transnational criminal organizations actually control the market of cocaine. So we have, I mean, it's, it's, if I were to sit here and, and explain the beginning more than that, we will be talking about several hours. <laughs> so how about instead of me, how about if I answer some more of your questions and I can get you into detail when it comes to that? Okay. We could do that. Well, do you, do you understand that the, so now the Mexicans control that, that market on the cocaine. Are they actually producing it themselves down in Mexico? So just recently, uh, seven months ago, eight months ago in the state of Guerrero. In fact, I used to have a house in Acapulco, which is in the state of Guerrero. Um, used to vacation in, in, in Acapulco, I mean, literally every summer. The mountainous, the mountainous part, I mean, Guerrero is a, is a mountainous jungle coastal area. Somehow, the Mexican organizations have figured out a specific strand of the coca leaf, which allows them to grow it in the state of Guerrero. There has been two, maybe three incidents in which the Sedena, Secretaría de la Defensa, the Mexican Department of Defense, the Mexican Army, has actually been able to locate and destroy these grows before documented. Not before documented. So the question is yes. Wow. So what about heroin? I know um, the opioids and, and growing the opium plants, the poppies, um, that was mostly coming from the Mideast, you know, Afghanistan, that area, but then 20 years of being in war, in Afghanistan, did that switch over to Mexico? Because I remember hearing that they were producing their own and growing their own fields down there as well. 80% of the heroin, and we're talking about various different types of heroin. We could could be talking about Mexican black tar or chapopote, as they call it down in Mexico. We could be uh, be talking about Mexican cinnamon or brown heroin. And then there's a more specialized more pure product known as China White. Um, within these products as well, there's another heroin known as um, gravel. And it literally looks like a gravel, like a piece of gravel. Um, so Mexican black tar heroin, which is the most common here in Colorado, um, a second would be the actual Mexican brown heroin or Mexican cinnamon, of these heroines of these products are coming in from Mexico. 
And that is based on actual lab work that has been done to the product. That can, can be actually said, yes, this strand of heroin is actually coming directly from Mexico. There's areas in Mexico where at one point in time, based on the demand here in the United States, which again, I mentioned it was marijuana and it was cocaine at one point in time. Once we have the first epidemic, the first opiate uh, incident or the first opiate epidemic, the first episode of that, once we have the increase of medications and those people being unfortunately addicted to these medications and we put a stop to, or we put more legislation and more rules and regulations into that uh, business, well, these people have to get the product somewhere. So the Mexican transnational criminal organizations observed that, noticed that, and banked on that because in areas like the Pentagono de la Mapola, the Puppy Pentagon, which is in the state of Guerrero, instead of marijuana now, now you're seeing mostly poppy fields. In the uh, Red Triangle, which is actually, no, the the, um, uh, the Golden Triangle, sorry. The Golden Triangle, which goes from um, um, Sinaloa to Durango to Chihuahua, that part area, a very fertile area, very remote area. Uh, at one point in time, they basically cut down the marijuana fields. And what are they producing at that specific moment in time? Poppy to actually make heroin. Eventually, the cooks um, that actually knew how to make a better heroin product from Asia and from uh, Colombia arrived in Mexico and taught the Mexicans how to do uh, Mexican China white, which is a very pure product. And in fact, if you look at a map of the United States, and the map is divided by the Mississippi, on this side of the Mississippi, on the eastern side of the Mississippi, the king would be, at that, at that moment in time, several years ago now, at that moment in time, it would be China white, the, the, the product in demand. While in this side, in the western side, it would be chapopote, Mexican black tar, or Mexican brown cinnamon. So how are they bringing this over the border? How does it get here? <laughs> Plane, trains, submersibles, and automobiles. During the trial of El Chapo Guzman, everybody should know who El Chapo Guzman is, Joaquin Loera, um, it was actually documented that the vast number of illegal narcotics being transported by that specific organization was by private motor vehicles into the United States. So you can have products coming in um, through the coast, through the highways, through the deserts, any which way. In fact, they can actually take him over to uh, Canada and then south into the United States because the northern border is the less secure of every single border there is. And this leads to the, I guess, the elephant in the state or the country, you know, fentanyl. Um, everything right now is fentanyl, fentanyl, fentanyl. And this is brought up by them as well. So we, we go from marijuana, cocaine, to heroin, and now we're in a fentanyl crisis. Um, where does fentanyl come from? Which is the third phase of this opiate epidemic. That would be the fentanyl bomb. Uh, and, you know, at one point in time, uh, Pablo Escobar, the leader of the Medellin cartel, he actually said, that the nuclear bomb that he set off on the United States was cocaine. Well, if you can say that from two places, because you cannot 
you cannot say that the Chinese are not responsible for what we're seeing today. So if the Chinese and the Mexican organizations had let out a bomb, a nuclear bomb in the United States, it would be the presence of fentanyl, specifically the counterfeit Oxy-30 fentanyl pills, hands down, especially right here in Colorado. Now, where does fentanyl come from? It's not a recent thing, believe it or not. The first major incident that happened with fentanyl was in Chicago. And it was around 2010 when the Sinaloa cartel, based out of a city known as uh, Tolula, which is kind of an hour and a half away from Mexico City, um, the organization was actually set there and was bringing in fentanyl into a uh, street gang in Chicago that was actually um, cutting it and passing it um, for sales and distributions. And at that point in time, I think it was like a hundred and, and again, the number skips me, but it's, it's about 160, 150 individuals died within a week, I believe it was. Wow. Until the DEA and local government figured out that they needed to put a crunch to that. They went after the, the, um, the street gang that was actually distributing this and eventually took the investigation all the way to Mexico. So fentanyl dates back to 2010. Um, eventually, when we first noticed uh, fentanyl here in sub- southwest Colorado, and in fact, some of these classes that I've been teaching for Colorado Post, I arrived with that knowledge in, in just south of where you are in Alamosa. And in fact, I think, I think you're from Alamosa. Yeah, and, I guess right, I'm <laughs> Yes, I, I love teaching in Alamosa. Um, by 2019, they had no idea what counterfeit oxy-30 fentanyl pills were. Uh, we had already discovered them in my, my side of Colorado, and it, they're here to stay, and they're not going anywhere, let me tell you. Yeah. What were they, what were they cutting it with originally? You said they were, they were cutting it in Chicago. Um, they actually were not cutting it. Oh. They were actually getting it, yep, they were getting it powder form, um, and then the uh, group in Chicago is like, well, if we cut it, then we're going to decrease the power. People are not going to come to us. We want to increase this market. Let's, let's cut it very little with, with whatever they were cutting it, if at any. And that's when you had people just literally collapsing that. Wow. So we, <clears throat> one of the questions that um, was proposed when we did our Voices of Rural Colorado um, of course, we had a DEA agent in, and he was talking about just the deaths and unintended deaths of fentanyl. I think they have their program, not one pill or, you know, just one pill. Because, one, one pill can kill. Yeah, one pill can kill. And and it's just not pills like you're reading that, you know, somebody thinks they're doing cocaine or they're trying something for the first time and then boom, they're dead. But it, one of the questions was like, why why are they making it so potent and deadly? Aren't they just killing their customers off? I'll tell you what, there is a, there is a, um, a substance that we found here. Um, the substance was a combination of methamphetamine and fentanyl. And the individuals that were selling it, they were calling it Black Death. Do you know how, how many people actually wanted to purchase that? A lot. <laughs> yes. It's a marketing. It's marketing. People are looking for that higher high. You know, when, when you do, as it was explained to me by God, now hundreds of interviews that I've done for uh, individuals that are involved in, in uh, the consumption of many, many narcotics. The way it's explained to me, 
is, is the very first time they do a powerful opiate or a powerful uh, amphetamine, that type of product. Um, the, the, the first time they get this high and it's, and it's radiant and, and they feel fabulous and they feel warm inside, their, their head cleared, they can actually kind of see where they want to go. That's how it was described to me. They continue to do that product and they can't get to that point. They can't get to that high. So they continue increasing. They continue increasing. They continue increasing until they get addicted. And they still continue to look for that one high that they will never find again. And hence the introduction of fentanyl. They want that high. They seek that high. People don't go around and say, oh, yeah, let me get. There's There's many words you can actually describe the counterfeit oxy 30 fentanyl pills some people call them the dirty uh, dirty 30s we call them blues over here it's not like they are not looking for blues it's not like they're looking for this counterfeit oxy 30 fentanyl pills expecting something else than fentanyl period they seek it they want it that's what they will pay 20 dollars a pill for uh, what's yeah. the saying? Always chasing that first high. I mean, yeah. just yeah. with anything. Oh man. Yes. Well, yes. we keep hearing too, just how much obviously the the changes, the advances in technology and communication have changed those things. Like, you know, twenty years ago, you had to follow some sketchy guy to a sketchy part of town to get like marijuana, and now you can get a fentanyl pill over Snapchat. Yeah. Like, oh, what yeah. are you seeing with that? As far as, and or how can, can you talk to us about how we can educate people more about how to avoid those things or how to help their kids avoid? Those things where we should look for, like on our kids' phones. That's a problem right there. Kids' phones. Yeah. Do kids really need a phone? Do, do they really need to communicate at 16 years old? Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I personally, I, I would never allow my child to have a phone to a certain age. Um, once, once I figure out that individual is responsible and, and I've exposed them to what I need to expose them, um, so that's a very hard com- that's a very hard conversation that parents need to have. You know, I am my my job is a uh, lead detective, a narcotics detective, um, is to try to um, curve the supply. It is the job of the parents to literally teach their children what the threat is, and the threat. Hands down, is not just fentanyl, but for the longest time in Colorado has been methamphetamine. So, and, and, it, and I am a true believer of two things. One, marijuana in, in the right atmosphere, in the right place, has its uses. I have seen it hands down. I am not arguing that at all. But should our children be exposed to marijuana in the high schools, in, the, in, in, in junior high? Uh, should parents be uh, basically promoting that by them using it in front of their children? As a parent, I, I would never do that. Never, never would do that. So we go back to the talk of of, of uh, not only it's um, uh, what's it called um, um, uh, chat or Facebook Messenger where you can actually purchase all these all these narcotics, but let's touch a little bit more about into how the cartels utilize social media to promote the sale of these illegal narcotics, to promote their own business. Um, if you haven't heard today of what cartel TikTok is, 
then you're behind the curve. Yeah. Because the cartels have weaponized social media to influence the opinion of your children, the opinion of your government, the opinion of their government, and the opinion of their citizens within Mexico and the United States. So there, there's many avenues to this. It just, it, it just spiders everywhere. And, and you got to figure um, the, 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 the widespread and sustained criminal activity that emanates from Mexico, the number one criminal threat to the United States, um, has created these challenges when it comes to politics and security. And the question that you just asked me falls into both. It literally does. And it, it emanates from these organizations that, technically speaking, educatingly speaking, you can say, have control of anywhere between 30 and 35% of the Mexican national territory. Wow. It's, it's, it's drastic. It's enormous. Yeah. It really is. And they control several states that are on their, on their control, mostly municipal and state governments, not so much federal, but is the federal government in Mexico involved to a point with this? We just saw it, today, uh, we just saw it uh, this past week with the trial of uh, Garcia Luna. He was convicted for taking money by the Sinaloa cartel directly from El Chapo Guzman. And this man at one point in time was the head law enforcement officer of the entire country. Zero military experience and zero law enforcement experience. But then again, here you have a Mexican president putting this man into a power. And he is the man that came up with what we called the kingpin approach in Mexico, the fight against the cartels. It was uh, the kingpin approach is seen two ways. One, the version of the DEA in the United States. The version of the kingpin approach for the DEA would be actually hitting an organization where it hurts the most financial, transportation, logistical, you know, the, the soft gut of the actual monster. And by doing that, the head would fall. The Mexicans actually did a completely different thing. They said, if we cut the head out of the snake, the body would die. Well, no. In Mexico, what happened? Instead of the, die, the, the body dying, it grew more heads and multiplied. It divided into various criminal organizations. So today... At any given point in time in Mexico, we have between 300 and 800 criminal organizations, regional mafias, drug trafficking organizations, street gangs, so on and so forth, and other mafiosos in the entire country. That's why it's incredibly difficult by themselves or by ourselves, without being united, to actually be able to predict the criminal element that operates in both countries. Wow. It's just like... It's almost like controlled chaos, you know. I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it controlled chaos because it's definitely chaos. Yeah, definitely chaos. It's definitely Con- chaos. Controlled pockets and, and, of and, chaos. And, and the, uh, the, the thing that mostly surprises me is that the United States and Mexico have only come together once. Yeah. Back in 2006 when President George Bush and President Calderon signed the Merida Initiative when they actually recognize that this is a problem for both countries. Today, is Mexico operating as Mexico yeah. does and is the United States operating as the United States does? 
And that is the number one problem that I see at this point in time because we're missing one picture. In this whole picture of narcotic security, um, immigration, I mean, it all falls into one big bubble. We are forgetting that our number one threat, not criminal threat, but our number one threat is China. And China is behind this, hands down. Look at what just happened with a famous balloon. Yeah, yeah, we're all paying attention to the damn balloon, but we're forgetting that the Chinese are supplying the Mexican transnational criminal organizations with these products that would in turn be distributed to our people here in the United States. And as of 2001, it's uh, 107,000 people have died of overdoses. That's the atomic bomb that they actually ignited in the United States. Well, and this this really frustrated me, and I, I think the I think it's more known now, and, and people are more aware of it. But you know, going back to 2017 or whenever it was, and and I'm trying to get out here and get in front of our our local leaders, you know, law enforcement, DAs, and stuff. I'm like, look, you you guys need to pay attention to this. You need to go through this class. Come talk to this guy with me. And I heard it from people here in Pueblo and some other areas. It's like, oh, we, we don't have a cartel problem in our, our city. We, we don't have this. And then, of course, going through your class, you get to, to recognize the symbols, right? <laughs> like, kind of opens your eyes and you walk around and uh, freaks you out a little bit. <laughs> but, but I'm like, no, I, I think we do. But th- nobody acknowledged. They're like, there's nobody. This organization is not operating in my town here. And sure, we have some drug dealers and local gang problems, but it's not this. You know what frustrates me the most? I have invited hundreds, hundreds of government officials, not law enforcement, hundreds of government officials to attend my classes. You know, the only one that has attended the actual vigilance project class for the whole entirety class, it was your boss and your staff when they were actually here serving the people of Colorado. I've had the opportunity to sit down in my office with our current um, congressional um, um, uh, congressperson, uh, but that's that's been it, and it's it just surprises me because we have all these politicians making these laws, mm-hmm. making these rules, right? And they have no clue what in reality is going on. I've had people, my own um, government officials here in in where I may or may not be working, yeah, uh, telling me that. The, Me- the Mexican cartels are not here. Why should we spend time in your classes when all of a sudden I do an investigation and I do a, 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 a traffic stop against a Sinaloa operative and I can show him a gun that was stolen here in this county in possession of these two Sinaloa operatives? You tell me, are the cartels operating here or not? I can tell you, I have, as of today, um, and I was asked this during a, uh, a federal um, court hearing, how many investigations have I done um, dealing with narcotics? Um, I have assisted, done, uh, or actually led anywhere between 1,000 and 1,500 investigations, mostly dealing against the cartels for a specific reason or another. And this has been throughout the entire country. People had hit me up like, Victor, what do I have? What does this mean? What is this? Who is this? What is the relevance of certain individuals and so on and so forth? And when I 
I look at the map of Colorado and I see who has actually hit me up to actually ask me these questions, I can go from every single corner of our great state. Every single corner, no doubt. And it's important to point out, and obviously our Colorado listeners will know this, but you know, you have uh, highways that go north and south, east and west through Colorado. So everything comes from Colorado and you could go to any part of the country from Colorado, from Mexico to Canada, to California, to wherever on the East coast. And I, and that's, you know, that was one that we worked on a lot was trying to get some of those resources to these areas because it's like, there are no resources where these people are operating at all. Uh, I, I told somebody, um, the uh, voices again, it's like, you know, you could be in counties in rural Colorado on the West slope or the Eastern plains. And there's certain points at night where there is not a police officer or sheriff on duty in these counties. And, and that, then, that is the reason why they do that. That's the reason why they're there. They know this. Yeah. Yep. And there's a, there's a County close to Pueblo where um, it's in the mountains. It's kind of secluded. And there's a fill-up station, um, just a kind of one of those truck stops, you know, everything in it, food, uh, gas, you know, a little restaurant, pizzeria, whatever, where the trucks come and park. And the sheriff there was putting up a camera and he let it run from, you know, midnight to four in the morning and literally dozens of cars, out-of-state plates, hauling stuff, stopping there, getting something to eat, gassing up. And he's like, every single one of those cars are trafficking something right now, and I cannot get the resources or support to interdict this this problem. And then what it what does it turn into? You have somebody getting out of a bar, you know, two in the morning, stopping at the gas station, and then bumps into a guy at the gas station, and then they get shot. And that's exactly what happened. Tell you what, so this just happened. I want to say just happened. Mm-hmm. And it happened to a, a, a neighboring location, jurisdiction to me. Uh, deputies did a traffic stop, right? A really nice vehicle, male and female passenger and driver. They both get out. Apparently, there is a large duffel bag in the back of the pickup truck. The duffel bag ended up being placed on top of the uh, hood of the vehicle. Um, if it, 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 it appears that the female passenger had a Bluetooth device. With that Bluetooth device, that individual orchestrated an actual two-prong attack on the traffic stop. You have a vehicle, a secondary vehicle approaching and opened fire on the deputies. Pam, 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 pam. As the deputies are concentrating and not getting shot and killed. Yeah. Another vehicle pulls to the traffic stop, and that uh, those individuals from that traffic stop uh, picked up the um, the uh, the the uh, duffel bag and took off on the wrong on, on the opposite way. <laughs> and this also goes to something that I've that I've been told by people in certain positions said, well, yeah, maybe they are operating here, but they're not going to cause violence in America because they don't want to be found out or they don't want to see. Throw away the whole part that they're, you know, giving out 100,000 fentanyl pills that'll kill 10,000 people eventually down the road. But they're like, they don't, they don't want to make a, they don't want to be found out, so they're not going to cause violence. You know, it's, it's violent in Mexico. You know, if you're an American, you go to Mexico, it's safe. They're not going to attack the tourists because they don't want to bring attention on it. 
I think that's bullshit now. I think that's bullshit more than ever. Maybe at some point in time I could go to Puerto Vallarta and, you know, I'm not going to get harassed by the local cartel guy if I stay in the tourist part. But you're reading more and more that that's not the case. And as you just said, we're seeing that violence spill over the border into America. You can look right here in Colorado. Uh, look what happened in Alamosa. In Alamosa with a case, and I'm not going to speak too much of it because out of respect, there was a gag order on that case. Yeah. I assisted on that case. Uh, it's the um, the psycho uh, individual that yep. killed, I think, seven people now. They have seven people uh, um, literally on him. Um, that, that was drug trafficking at its best. Uh, and where were they getting the dope from? The Mexican transnational criminal organizations. The, the, the Mexican transnational criminal organizations utilize gang members at all levels to distribute the products. Not only to distribute, but also as soldiers to protect their territories. Um, you have in Maryland, uh, MS-13 was very active. MS-13 at one point in time were distributing for a specific cartel in that area. But if you want to go more specific to actual cartels, Taking over, look what happened in, I believe it was in Florida, where a prosecutor got killed for actually doing a cartel case. Mm. This is no joke. I mean, mm -hmm. look what happens in, in Arizona. You see videos, again, on cartel TikTok mm -hmm. of individuals driving in a vehicle, and they see a, parking, a, a, a parked actual traffic stop or a parked deputy or a parked police officer, and they bring out their 50 caliber uh, Barrett just to show force, and they put it out on the web to show fear, to demonstrate fear, to create fear. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, the Mexican cartels are the number one criminal threat, and there's no way you can change my mind off of that because I have seen it, and I deal with it every single day. So this, this again, was something we were working on um, back in the day. Would you consider them classified as terrorists? Depending on what, well, I think it's, there's 107 definitions for what terrorist is. Yes. That's one of the reasons why the U.S. government has not been able to agree on something. Um, I, I take my hat off to the governor of Texas for actually grading the Mexican transnational criminal organizations as terrorist organizations. And by doing so activating the National Guard and actually preventing, well, curving yeah. what's happening in Texas right now. I'm going to have the great pleasure to actually be teaching in Texas here um, in April. Um, and what I see, what these individuals tell me is something that as Coloradoans, we do not want to see. I can tell you that for a fact. It's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we kind of... It's we're speechless after you say <laughs> everything. Right. Well, I keep coming back. To, I'm, I'm still on that thought about how many of our elected officials are in denial. I mean, maybe that's the nicest way to say it, in denial that this is happening in our communities. I mean, what's the how can how can we help you raise better awareness about what's going on and what to look for and, and indications of proof that this is going on in our neighborhoods? We need to start picking exactly who we pick to lead us. Yeah. That's number one. Mm -hmm. Number two, even though we pick somebody that might be um, willing to help law enforcement, we need to teach him what we see. Him. 
because they can hear, they can hear from me, they can hear from you know multiple other subject matter experts. But until they don't actually get out there and actually see, do a ride along, come to a lab and look at this, go to a morgue and see exactly what was happening. Go to a funeral. Out of the one out of the the, the one hundred and seven people that have died, how many of of our elected officials have actually gone to a funeral of one of these individuals and gotten the actual sense of what threat these groups are actually placing into our communities. This is, this is, this is not a uh, victimless crime at all. And then we talk about, I mean, just alone fentanyl. Like I said, is the atomic bomb that China and Mexico and the Mexican cartels, not Mexico, but the Mexican cartels detonated in the United States. And I mean, from your standpoint, are these like, I mean, these cartels and stuff, these organizations, is it, is it a case of them operating in plain sight or hiding in plain sight rather? They hide and, in plain sight. And what are some things that you train like your officers on and with this vigilante vigilance? Vigilance. It's a vigilance, vigilance project. Yes. What, what are some things, give us some examples of things you, you teach these guys to, to look for or things that you just can't help but walk in the room and notice. Like that dapper well, gentleman behind yeah, you like on your, the like file cabinet. Uh, with my friend in the back. Yes. Um, so when I figure my background, I am a former Mexican uh, national. I uh, immigrated into the United States, and the United States accepted me with open arms. And this is my way of giving back to the people of the United States, the people of Colorado. At the same time, I want to give back to my fellow immigrants. At the same time, I've always be. Mexican. I, I am very proud of my heritage, incredibly proud. And so when I go and teach law enforcement, I teach him that unfortunately, um, today's trainings can be considered bias, right? Because individuals in law enforcement don't know the difference between non-criminal behaviors as they relate to my culture and the criminal behaviors of narcocultura, mm-hmm. the, the subculture of the Mexican cartels. And again, the Mexican cartels is between 300 and 800 DTOs, drug trafficking organizations, regional mafias. In Mexico, when you're an organization that deals with crime, you are culturally called a cartel. By definition, doesn't mean you're an actual transnational criminal organization. And so my job is to go out there and teach law enforcement exactly what they're seeing as it relates to my culture and narco cultura. What is the differences? And for example, you just mentioned the, the young man behind me uh, who is Jesus Malverde, right? It's an actual folk saint, uh, a legend. And, and some people believe that automatically he's going to be a, what they mistakenly call an indicator of criminal activity. And reality is not. Mm-hmm. What you see behind me is part of Mexican Christianity. That's an actual cultural belief, cultural belief in certain folk saints and Roman Catholic patron saints, which individually can represent a specific patronage. Mm-hmm. Um, nowadays, the patronage of Jesus Malverde is actually uh, prevents you Uh, from being addicted. It helps you with addiction. Some hijack these symbols like Jesus Malverde, La Santa Muerte, Saint Jude, to actually mean a specific 
other thing, almost like the swastika. Right. The swastika is an ancient religious belief that dates back thousands of years ago before the Nazis. <laughs> before the Nazis hijacked it, adopted it, and became a different symbol. And now even here in the United States, we have certain hate groups that have hijacked that symbol and added their own specific meaning to it. So in Mexico and here in the United States, certain people have hijacked these items to mean a specific thing. So that's what you see behind. That's why I, I when, when I teach these classes, uh, it's very important for law enforcement because at the end of the day, as a, as a police officer, as a police officer that's in the road, a police officer that's uh, helping somebody in a domestic violence whatever it may be, whatever service we're providing as law enforcement, that's what we're doing. We're providing a, a service no matter on gender, no matter on religion, no matter on ethnicity, no matter in nationality. We provide a service, protect and serve. And if we are not taught the differences between criminal behaviors and non-criminal behaviors, we will never be able to focus on those individuals that present the number one criminal threat to the United States, which is the 1%. Right. That's what I'm interested in. I am wanting, I am seeking that 1% of individuals that hide in plain sight that bring these poisons to my community and your community and our nation as a whole. And what, is, what are some other uh, telltale signs that you look for as far as identifying that, that 1% of those, of those individuals? Believe it or not, cartels, organizations use logos and symbols to actually identify themselves to each other, even to military, even to law enforcement. You can go, and I'm going to go with an old, an old symbol that's really not used anymore, uh, just because I don't want to give up all the secrets, especially in an open podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, an old symbol would be the, the symbol used by Los Cetas. Los Cetas Cartel was uh, an um, 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 organized criminal organization in Mexico. I'm saying was because now we're seeing the splintering of that original group, that original group which actually was the creation of various military members that actually had left the Mexican Special Forces to create their own criminal group um, down in the Gulf of Mexico, Veracruz, Chiapas, Reynosa, Tamaulipas, all that coast actually at one point in time belonged to the Setas cartel. Now they're splintered. One of the symbols that back in the day you can actually see when you're driving into their plaza was a Zeta. This is their actual hand symbol. You can see the C there. You can see Zs literally spay printed in rocks on mountains saying this is our turf, this is our plaza. Another old symbol actually used by them was the famous Ferrari symbol. Mm-hmm. Um, and you would actually see him. I've encountered the Setas cartel here in my jurisdiction several times. In one case, one of these individuals that had a large amount of money hidden behind the tail lamp of a vehicle, we actually had to take the tail lamp off. And in the void between that, there were thousands and thousands of dollars hidden actually um, inside um, air um, sealed bags concealed inside of it. Mm. And one of the symbols that I saw and I noticed and I recognized automatically was a little tiny 
Ferrari symbol on his shoes. So it could be as small as that, or it could be as big as putting that on the actual hill of a mountain. So these individuals do use symbols to identify themselves, communicate with each other, and set set boundaries. Yeah. So kind of want to lighten it up a little bit here going forward. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> You know, what, what's my bad? No, 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 it's all good. It's all good. Um, which ironically, the last podcast, I let out a stream of curse words. So this one I did too. So we've got to throw that explicit marker. Yeah. I don't want to <laughs> upload it. Well, I, I had a, a veteran that does all this, the one that does the counseling and stuff. And he's just like throwing F bombs out. And then halfway through, he's like, can I say a cuss word? I'm like, dude, you've been cussing the entire time. <laughs> but I've been very careful. I, I'm, no, I'm usually I, careful when. When it's a public podcast like that, if it yeah. would be a law enforcement thing, it yeah, would be another right. thing. But but I mean, some of the stuff it's like holy shit! Like see, that's it's, all you can say. To that's it. all. Yeah, that's all you can say. What what's some positives though? Like looking forward, what what are we doing right? What's what's the light at the end of the tunnel when it comes to this? I'm seeing the cooperation between inner agencies being one of the positive things. I couldn't do my job without my federal partners, DEA and BIA, the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can't speak uh, enough words to actually thank them for the amount of work that they have put into some of my investigations here. Um, and so I'm, I'm very thankful for that. That's one of the best. I think that's one of the, lear- the lessons that we learned from September 11th. Mm-hmm. Um, that if we do not communicate and we do not cooperate with the, with each other so, uh, before something bad happens, uh, we're never going to get anywhere. So I think that uh, that's a positive thing that's actually occurred from here, from this. Um, people are beginning, and, and my, my, what I see, to realize that just because you're using narcotics or you're buying narcotics, um, obviously doesn't mean that you're a criminal by mm-hmm. itself. These individuals suffer from a disease. Um, and it's a disease that unfortunately now nowadays and can kill you with one try. Uh, yeah. So that's, I guess, the positive light in the tunnel. People are actually seeing that if you go to the street and you buy these illegal narcotics, you could literally die. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's a, I mean, it's a jagged edge. Um, can it curve the demand to a point, maybe hopefully from our younger individuals that are thinking or have, have some type of a little devil in their shoulder saying, Hey, maybe we can try this. It'll be a good time. Like, go hold on dude. If we tried once we could die. Yeah. So I guess that's that could be a positive thing. Yeah. Uh, other than that, we're behind the curve. Yeah, right. Unfortunately, we 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 are way behind the curve. Um, there is there is counties that their their prosecutor are not prosecuting some of these cases uh, because fentanyl is a legal um, substance, and until they get proven that that item is you know an illegal. Uh, substance counterfeit manufacturer manufactured somewhere else than the medical establishment they won't charge 
So that's that's why I go around saying, okay, if your DA office is not going to take the charge of fentanyl, uh, take the charge, give them the charge of counterfeit ox, counterfeit medications because in the state of Colorado, that is a drug felony three. Hmm. So so that's the you know you have to kind of work with the system to actually get the system working for you. Yeah, and we are behind the curve. We are truly behind the curve. I am lucky to be in in a place where, thank God, my um, my prosecutor's office has said, we want no fentanyl. We're going to take no prisoners on this. We are going to go with 14, 16, 15 years in prison for dealing counterfeit Oxy-30 fentanyl pills. And that has been a fact. Um, so I am very proud of my, my DA's office. Uh, there's a little more more to be done and we don't have the money for it. We don't have the ability to do some of these operations that we do because again, it's a financial burden on us. You made an important distinction right there. Go after the dealers of it. And I, and also earlier you said that, you know, we're recognizing that this is a disease and just because you're addicted to these drugs doesn't make you a criminal for the first time. in my almost 20 years of doing this, you're finally seeing all aspects of this problem sit at the table to try to come to a consensus. You know, five, ten years ago, if I held a roundtable that had law enforcement, counseling, medical, nonprofits all sitting around the table, they absolutely would not listen to each other and would not talk to each other on that. And now I'm starting to see that, hey, they're kind of coming together on this to figure out solutions that actually work. And, and you know, they're not all right but they're not all wrong either. And that's, that to me is a positive that I've seen because we tried, I mean, how many did we do with you and brought everybody in? And it was funny because as, as you had law enforcement or the medical community leave the room, they were all talking smack about each other. Like, I can't believe he said that that's wrong. That's wrong. Mm -hmm. Now, when they leave the room, they're talking more saying, Hey, look, I'm seeing this, you know, this is how we're approaching this. And to go back to the you know, the opioid crisis, um, not to throw the VA under the bus, but, you know, it's a perfect example where you had these these vets go in, they can't get their surgery, the VA just gives them pills and pills and pills upon pills for years. And then, unfortunately, there were, there were a lot of good things that came out of the opioid legislation that we worked on, but there were some negatives, again, unintended consequences of legislation, where you have these vets that are 55 60 or even younger now and they're like hey any my pain meds and they're like oh we had to cut those off and no help after that uh some of them you know it was like well marijuana marijuana is legal just go smoke some weed like you can do that um or you know try a lot of tylenol but they went to the streets and that's when they started buying up this heroin and then now it's fentanyl and i still see the the side effects of that to this day where I have friends that have been doing illegal drugs, heroin, opioids, whatever. And again, like at the time, I think buying a Percocet or whatever, an Oxycontin, you know, it was like 50 bucks when they could go get a shot of heroin for, a, you know, a dollar. And so mm -hmm. what are, what are you going to do? You're on a fixed mm -hmm. income. You're going to go pay a mm -hmm. dollar for a day of pain relief versus, you know, 50 for a couple hours. So um, not too long ago, maybe, God, it must have been maybe 30 days ago probably a little less than that. Uh, we were doing surveillance and we get the call for an overdose. We stopped by 
uh, we go inside with the uh, with the firefighters, and it was a male, seventy six years old, mm-hmm. literally doing doing foilies, meaning they grab a piece of foil, and this is something the parents. You ask me how to curve. Um, yeah. Well, parents need to be educated on the use of illegal narcotics and what they need to look at. Right. So they grab a foily, made basically an aluminum foil, um, and in it they put the blue pill, the blue fentanyl pill. At the bottom they do a torch or a lighter, and then they put a little pen or a straw, something hardy, and they literally chase the smoke as they burn the fentanyl pill. And then the remnants on the actual foil will be a, a, kind of like a black streak. Mm-hmm. The smell, believe it or not, smells like popcorn. Mm-hmm. Smells like popcorn, buttery popcorn. So that's something parents need to actually be looking at. So we go inside, and, and this man, you can see the foily with still a fentanyl pill on it, and he gets Narcom twice, comes back all pissed off because the EMTs and the firefighters just took him yeah. out of his high, and now he starts feeling the pain I think it was uh, his, his sternum somehow. And like, I need my pain medications, but they're too expensive. Yeah. So, again, now we're falling into, I mean, not only security, not only border security, not only um, uh, the overdoses. We're falling into the medical, you know, Medicaid and all this stuff. It's all intertwined. That's why the security of Mexico directly affects the United States in all aspects, not just drug distribution. Yeah, yeah. And is there hope for Mexico? Because everything I, I see on the news, it's like Mexico is in a state of civil war is basically what they, they tell you. But what's what's the hope for Mexico? You know, it, it, it's, it's a hard question for me being – yeah. From Mexico City, you know, it's... That, that's why it, I ask, like, legitimately. Obviously, yes. Do I believe that there is hope at the end of the tunnel? It's a long tunnel. Uh, there's always hope, right? There's always ways to be positive. Um, at one point in time, I could tell you that the best thing for the people of Mexico and the country of Mexico is to be under a, a rule of control like the old party, the PRI. Mm-hmm. Um, which they were in control for 71 years, and it's literally categorized as the Bolsheviks in Latin America, right? They were they were complete control of Mexico in a hidden uh, republic or democracy. They were all about keeping control and maintaining that control. And during that time, even though the Mexican uh, cartels were still operating, you didn't see the violence that we actually see today. You didn't see the the now estimated 350,000 people that have died from 2006 on to today. Wow. Um, it, it, it said, is it a state of a civil war? It, it's, it's not so much a state of civil war. It's a state at an emergency status. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I did not mean to imply that it's in a state of civil war, but that's what the media is saying. And, and you're very correct. Absolutely. You see all the, the, the grim and, and, and the terror and, and so on and so forth. You know, I continue to go to Mexico. I'm not going to give details, <laughs> but I continue, I continue to go home. Um, in fact, my, my wife is in love with Mexico. Um, in fact, she's saying that maybe one day we can move back to Mexico. 
I'm saying, uh, we would have to change my last name. Yeah. Uh, maybe a little plastic surgery, uh, maybe a toupee or two. But, <laughs> but um, there is parts of Mexico that continue to be beautiful places to this hands down. Um, there's places that I say yes to, to law enforcement officers that tell me, okay, Victor, should I go to Cancun? No, you should not go to Cancun. <laughs> should I go to Cabo San Lucas? No, you should not go to Cabo San Lucas. Should I go to Piedras Negras right in the border of, of you know, New Mexico and Arizona and Mexico? No, you should never go there. <laughs> um, where should you go? But, where should you go? Yeah, where should you go? I want to go to Mexico yeah. with my wife. Top three vacation go? spots. The coast of Oaxaca. The coast of Oaxaca, Huatulco, Puerto Escondido, that area is beautiful. And I've been there for up to close to a month. Now, zero issues as a law enforcement officer, uh, literally there. And, and had I rented a vehicle, rented a house. I didn't have to stay in a, you know, $1,000 night resort. To guarantee my safety because you still can't do that. Look what happened in Cancun last year. Yeah. And that was actually going back to the 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 fact that the Mexican transnational criminal organizations are everywhere. The individual that got killed in that very famous Mexican resort in Cancun, actually in Tulum and in Cancun later, uh, one of the individuals was a uh, individual involved with the Canadian Thai mafia. That was in bed with the cartels. Interesting. Everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah. You, so, you said earlier times that um, those organizations number anywhere from like 300 to 800. At any given point in time. I yes. mean, so within that 300, that's obviously, that sounds like a really large range to me. How much does that fluctuate and what contributes to the fluctuation between three and 800? Six months ago, the official number was just under five hundred. Mm-hmm. 500. Yeah, 500 and it's the separate. splintering yeah 500 500 different organizations operating in mexico um and where it changes it changes because of the splintering of these groups uh, when you when you have leadership when you have loss of territory the the actual uh, organization tends to split not just in one but in multiple in some cases in some cases it just disappears right and then they could get another name and boom you have another organization. But the two largest organizations that we're seeing in Mexico today that pose the real threat specifically when we're talking about fentanyl and methamphetamine would be Cartel Jalisco Nueva Generación, CJNG, mm-hmm. and the, or, the Sinaloa organization. I am not calling the Sinaloa organization a cartel anymore because to be an actual definition of a cartel means unity, right? It's a conglomerate of people coming together, it says it right there in the definition, to make a profit. The splintering within the group, the Sinaloa organization, already exists, and you probably have have learned a little bit about El Culiacanazo 2.0, the thing that just happened literally not only just last year, at the end of last year, actually 2022, right? Uh, or was it last month? Last month. Uh, and then what happened in 2019 in, in Culiacan? So the splintering of that organization already occurs, and it's been occurring since the arrest of El Chapo Guzman, mm. uh, but also Cartel Jalisco Nueva Generación. Um, you can actually describe it almost as a the Roman Empire 
the Roman Empire, just like CJNG, has gotten so big. I think they're now in 27 states in the Republic. Um, and they operated here in course They operated here in Colorado, by the way. Um, they've gotten so big and so powerful that just like the Roman Empire, mm-hmm. at one point in time, you got to collapse. You right. collapse under your own weight. Right. Yeah. And so that organization already started actually splintering. I don't know if you probably, you may have seen or you can research. Uh, there was a funeral procession, uh, not actually last year, I think it was last summer, in which it was for a specific group, actually a small cell within the CJNG, and another cell came to that funeral, lined them up against the wall, and literally sprayed them down yeah. and killed, we don't know how many people, because once the Mexican army and the Mexican Navy arrived, there was no bodies, there was no blood. The only thing that they found was the holes on the wall, and they had cleaned up the uh, the crime scene with bleach. Wow. Mm-hmm. Jeez. And so, so that's the reason why the ups and downs in those numbers. I have a million questions still. <laughs> if you don't mind, if we could keep going forward. Go ahead. As long as my wife doesn't call me and kill me. All right. Um, we'll, We're we'll, good so far. All right. All right. Good. Um, so looking at cartel TikTok and all these, these videos out there, how the heck are these guys armed better than the military? I mean, they're kitted up better than I was. And I was in like a very well-funded, well-resourced unit back in the day. Where are they getting this from? <laughs> There's many avenues where they get these. Obviously, the Iron River. The Iron River is the trafficking of illegal weapons coming in from the United States into Mexico. That's one source. Another source is coming in from the southern border of Mexico. Guatemala, El Salvador, all these countries that at one point in time had weapons from the uh, um, kind of like the, the reminiscences of the Soviet Union mm-hmm. that was providing um, to El Salvador, to Nicaragua, all these weapons coming in to fight, you know, you know the American um, way of life, I guess you could call it. So they're being transported from, from that part of the border as well as within the Mexican military. Last year, there was a, um, an assault, an attack, of, um, um, what do they call it, a uh, computer attack into mm-hmm. the mainframes for Sedena, for the Department of Defense in Mexico. And I think they were saying like 17 million documents came out of that. One of those documents was actually the Mexican military selling firearms, grenades, um, and ammunition to a specific criminal group. Um, There's another research that I did. Um, One of the videos that I put in, I don't know, some of your your weapon savvy or or firearms savvy uh, viewers may know what a uh, KSG is. Mm -hmm. The KSG is a a shotgun made by Celtic. It's a bullpup shotgun. It's about literally this big. It's got two magazines, one barrel. Awesome. I have two. <laughs> um, that weapon is illegal to have in Mexico. But let alone with the use of WhatsApp, you were talking about that, with the use of WhatsApp, you can contact a criminal group in Mexico City and buy that firearm. It costs you here in the United States about 850 bucks right now. 
uh, you can buy it for $2,500 and get it de- delivered to your home in Mexico City. It's like Amazon. So, yeah, just about. <laughs> yeah, just about, yes. But when you actually can purchase weapons from your own military, you can actually see the errors and the mistakes and how the actual security situation is in Mexico. Yeah. When you have the, the biggest or the most powerful law enforcement officer in the entire nation being put in a federal trial here in the United States and being convicted, you can see the errors of that. Um, last time I went to Mexico, not too long ago, I had an interview with several friends that are in the Mexican military. And I mean, some of them are now colonels, uh, but a couple of them are captains. And as I go around talking to them, uh, they tell me one thing when I ask them the question, why aren't we done with this already? Because the experience, the training, the drive that the Mexican uh, Sedena or the Mexican Department of Defense has is relatively very good. Hands down, specifically when you're talking about La Marina Nacional, mistakenly called the Mexican Marines. They're not Mexican Marines, by the way. They're just infantry individuals belonging to La Marina Nacional, the National Navy. And then within that, you have the Special Forces, uh, Grupo Aéreo Fuerzas Especiales, GAFES. They're incredibly trained their morale is really high. They know what they're doing, and they've been doing this fight for 50 years now. So when I go to these guys, I'm like, why aren't we done with this? Each one of these high-ranking officers tell me, describe, uh, describe it in, in, in almost a phrase verbatim, each one of them, because they don't let us. Hmm. The highest. Don't let the military to take care of what they need to take care of. Unfortunately, that's a story of the times, right? Mm-hmm. It really is. Yeah, I guess in the, in every country. Yeah, yeah, it to is. To a point, it to is. a point, that's where we're we're seeing ourselves in law enforcement. Yeah, you know why can't we combat um, these organizations within the United States? Why are we behind the ball? No, because we we are in some places um, we're handcuffed with our hands behind our back. Yeah. I've gotten so many. I've, I went to a, a great conference, another group that I'm part of, Street Cap Trainings. I actually teach a, a one-day class for that a law enforcement group. The class is known as Cartel uh, Training for Law Enforcement. And they had a huge conference in uh, New Jersey last October. Um, and I am talking to officers thousands of officers from all around the United States. Some of them are really young. Some of them are old. They're very motivated and they're very, they're wanting to learn. That's why a lot of them have to pay from their own pocket to go to these Mm -hmm. conferences to actually learn. That's problem number one. Yeah. Then I'm talking to these law enforcement officers and they're telling me how they're looking for another place to go because in New Jersey and New York, they, they now can't even do a traffic stop. <laughs> uh, but they get paid, you know, $110,000 starting, and it's a great salary for someone like me in Colorado. Holy shit, $110,000, I would never see that even if I get promoted to 
sheriff of this county. Yeah. We, we just don't make that type of money. But you have a starter officer in New Jersey making that type of money, but they can't even do a traffic stop. So there's quite a lot of, a, a lot of issues, and it's because the higher-ups are preventing us from doing our job because there is that, unfortunately, small percent percentage of Americans that think uh, we are a terror group. If I can say something is, um, I, you know, I teach these classes so I can afford to be able to be a police officer. I love what I do because what I do is serve and protect the people of Colorado and the people of this great nation. That is my job. That is my focus. I do it in the small way of combating the cartels and teaching other law enforcement how to combat the cartels. There's other officers that do it with their experts at domestic violence. Others are experts are doing child trafficking, yeah. child molestation, child, which, by the way, the, lar- the, uh, the largest producer of child porn is Mexico. Just to throw that in there on top of it. Um, and so we all have our specialties, but some of us, unfortunately, are not um, given that 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 opportunity to do our full service, which is what we want to do. That's why we have this job. That's why these individuals have pinned a, a badge or a star on their chest, a target to actually hold the line to prevent the floodwaters from criminality from taking over our great communities. I would never, ever be involved with a law enforcement officer or a so-called law enforcement officer that would be dirty or would be uh, walking around the line from loss, this that that would be the last thing any one of my partners, any one of the law enforcement officers that I've had the great honor and privilege to work with, to actually work with at that point in time. That would be a sacrilege for us to actually do that. That that that's uncalled for. So that's unfortunately the environment that we're in today. Well, that was a lot. We appreciate you coming on and sharing your story and, and what you do. Um, can you give the listeners um, a website? You know, if they're, they're interested in finding out more, we have a lot of elected officials listening to this, where they can find the Vigilance Project, how they could possibly get involved with that, um, anything like that. So the webpage is www.thevigilanceproject, one word, Net. Uh, for those of you in Colorado, actually, there's a class coming in in Broomfield, Broomfield, Colorado, just outside Denver. That class is actually in May. We're going to be celebrating Cinco de Mayo in the class. By the nice. way, that's an incentive. Yes. And that class is open to government officials. They would have to contact me via the email that they can get in the webpage, confirm their credentials. And then they they would go through the process of registering for the class. But yes, that class is open to law enforcement officers of all assignments um, and go, uh, uh, government officials of all posts, which I think is a very important thing as we actually talked about during this class. I'm going to be also in uh, Texas. That class is also open for government officials just outside Dallas, uh, Rock, uh, Rockwall, Texas. Uh, hosted by the Rockwell County Sheriff's Office there. I'm also going to be in Santa Fe, New Mexico next month. That class is actually hosted by the the, uh, Department of Public Safety. 
Um, then later I will be going to Minnesota to teach for the um, Bureau of Appreh- Criminal Apprehension and the Narcotics Officers Training Association for that state. And then later on, I will be going down for a major conference in um, New Orleans, Louisiana, the Motor Vehicle Criminal Interdiction Conference, great event. And then I'll be finding myself back to Colorado to Snow Mass for the Colorado Drug Investigators Association, of which I am a part of as uh, vice president for a specific region. So all great uh, agencies and all great organizations that I'm, I'm actually lucky, lucky to be a part of. And at the end of each class, do you buy everybody a shot of tequila? <laughs> we might do a, a tequila tour, maybe. <laughs> they have to sign a waiver. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we, we really appreciate you coming on and, and talking with us. Um, I'll give the quick disclaimer. The views and opinions on this podcast do not reflect the views and opinions of Action 22, its board, or its membership. And also, Victor's views and opinions do not reflect any organization that he may or may not be a part of, but they are of his own. That well, is correct. Well, again, thank you for coming on. And um, that was a lot. So, That's a lot. <laughs> so, we really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you, Victor. Absolutely. And, and stick around absolutely. after I say goodbye. We'll talk some more. Yeah. All right. Absolutely. Stay safe. And, uh, Thank you very much. Keep up the fight. Stay safe and remain vigilant. All right. Thanks, Victor. Thanks, Victor. Thank you for tuning in to Making Action Happen. Be sure to join your hosts, Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain, for another edition of the show next Thursday at 1 p.m. Mountain Time, 12 noon Pacific Time, and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.